Last week I attempted to introduce you to what I hope would be a comprehensive understanding of biblical fasting. Far too many Christians are forced to live with really screwy ideas about fasting. And when I was a young believer, I was one of them. I confess it. I was one of them until I met Denny Lobb. What, uh, 30, 35 years ago? Is it? <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. He and I pastored a church together on the East Coast back in the 80s. And it was during those years that I experienced what might be called the lob effect. <laughs> you see, when you spend any significant time with Denny, two things always happen to you. Two things always happen to you. The first thing that happens to you is that the first thing that happens to you is that all your screwed up ideas get unscrewed. <laughs> I know of no one who can more gently, more humbly, more effectively unscrew a person than Denny. He has been a blessing to me in my life, and I'm sure that he has been a blessing to you as well. Is that not true? Amen. The second thing that happens to you is that you become miserable. You see, before I met Denny, I was your typical, joyful, WBCL-listening, head-in-the-sand Christian who would have been perfectly content getting my doctorate from Joy Bell's Bible Institute. But no, I met Denny and had explained to me the irredeemable faults and failures of the modern American church so that today I live a life of misery and despair. <laughs> I have to admit, however, Denny, that the light does far outweigh the pain. Uh, last week I, and this week, I'm hoping to unscrew some of the screwy ideas that people have about fasting. Last week, I enumerated what fasting is not. Fasting is not the means by which Christians acquire spiritual power and authority. Fasting is not the means by which we convince God that we're really sincere about what we're asking. Fasting is not the means by which we can somehow push through the divine reluctance and somehow force God to answer our prayers in the affirmative. And fasting is not the means by which we are reminded to pray for someone. And then I told you what I believe fasting is. Fasting is the natural expression of mourning. Fasting is the natural expression of grief, of, of profound contrition. It's the natural expression of humility. Now, let's see if I can demonstrate that to you this morning. Hopefully you all have a piece of paper. I saw them being handed out, on which is recorded all 42 passages in the Bible uh, referring to fasting. That is, the deliberate withholding of food for from oneself. Uh, you're not being starved, you are starving yourself, okay? And we're going to race through these passages. You can imagine, 42 of them in one morning. So I'm going to just fly through them. We're not going to be able to spend much time on any one of them. Uh, and what I want you to do as we look through is find the hints in the context that will tell you the reason why the people are fasting. And in the blank third column, you will write M for morning, 
G for grief, C for contrition, or H for humility. Okay? Real simple. All right? Now, regarding those four choices, I don't want to tell you what to choose. Instead, I want you to call out the answer. Now, hold on. I know that the biggest problem with asking people to do that is they're reluctant because they're afraid they're going to get it wrong. It's almost impossible for you to get it wrong this morning. Let me explain what I mean. Remember last week I mentioned to you that these four words are so intimately connected together that they, in fact, form just one reason why you fast, right? Let me explain what I mean. Like, for instance, the words <clears throat> mourn and grief are virtually synonymous, are they not? In English, however, <clears throat> we tend to use the word mourn for a loss that's already incurred, whereas grief can refer to a loss already incurred as well as a loss about to be incurred, right? You see the difference? It's slight, but they're so closely related to virtually synonyms. With regard to the words, the word uh, contrite and humility, when we are crushed under the weight of our own sin, we are in fact humiliated. It is impossible to be both proud and contrite at the same time, right? Just doesn't happen. So let's suppose, this is just something I'm supposing, let's suppose that our nation has been annihilated by an enemy and those, who and those who are left alive are being carried off as captives. Such a defeat is humiliating. If the cause of that defeat was our disobedience to God, that would also involve profound contrition, right? And as you're being drugged off to some new land, you're also mourning the loss of the lives that you saw uh, taken, and you're grieving the loss of your freedom. So you're fasting about this, and all of those words come to play in one act. You see how closely related they all are? So what I'm saying to you is, it's going to be next to impossible for you to get the answer wrong this morning. Half the time, the context tells you which of those words to choose. The other times, it will, the hint will be so strong that uh, you'll be able to discern and some of the answers can, are, are multiple. You can, have one of every, you can have one of three or four. So don't be afraid. Call out the answer. Don't call them out. Just say out loud what the answer is. Because I don't want to go through this whole thing telling you the answer. It's just too boring for me. Okay? You ready? All right, let's go. <clears throat> Let me see. All right. Leviticus 16.31, this is the account of the Day of Atonement. Uh, we read this. <clears throat> for it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, so that you may humble yourselves. It is a permanent statute. Now the word in question here, which I have recorded on your sheet, is the Hebrew verb anah which means to be bowed down or afflicted, uh, which includes being humbled and weakened by fasting. So some translations have denying yourselves, others afflicting yourselves, and still others go without eating. But most of the better Bibles translate it as humbling yourselves. But this humbling process is universally understood to mean to include going without eating. It's universally understood to include fasting, okay? And here you have the direct connection between humility and fasting. 
Because when you fast, you become weak. And you become humbled and dependent upon God. It's the very opposite of being well-fed, strong, and independent of God. Do you see this? That's the connection between fasting and humility. Fasting makes you weak and dependent and therefore humble. Now, the impression that we get in Scripture, especially by the ways the Pharisees behaved, fasting twice a week, is that one of God's favorite things to do to his people is to make them fast. But that's not true. When you look at the Bible, what you discover is that God prescribed one fast a year. One. On one day. And that was it. All the rest of the fasts you see in the Bible were instituted by man. And God certainly refers to them, but he didn't institute them. So you can certainly see that Jesus was more than correct when he said, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. I mean, God's commandments were not burdensome. He wasn't having you fast twice a week, once a year. That's it. Isn't that interesting? Leviticus 23.32. This also is referencing the Day of Atonement. Uh, Details are repeated here. 31. You shall not do any work. It is to be a permanent statute through your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you shall what? Humble yourselves. Okay. The verb here is an ah, and it means... uh, that fasting is to be understood as part of the humbling process. So both of these references in Leviticus refer to fasting connected to humility. Judges 20, 26. This is a very weird account of the civil war of all the other tribes of Israel with Benjamin. Uh, it, this is a very weird and horrendous story of the men of the tribe of Benjamin behaving like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was very strange. All the other tribes of Israel assembled and went to war against Benjamin, and over the course of two two days, they lost 40,000 men to Benjamin. 40,000. And having suffered those losses, we read this. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel, and they wept and remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. So fasting would be an expression of mourning, right? They lost 40,000 soldiers. 1 Samuel 7, 6. This is deliverance from the Philistines. The Israelites had become idolatrous, and because of that, they were helpless before the Philistines. Samuel gathered them together, and we read this. So they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. So fasting would be an expression of contrition. Good. 1 Samuel 31, 12 to 13. This is about the death of Saul and his sons. Saul and his sons die in the battle with the Philistines and after valiant men reclaim their bodies and then burn them, we read this. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So, this fasting would be an expression of mourning. Right. Second Samuel 1.12. David learns of the death of Saul and Jonathan. And when David learned this, uh, 
that they had died, he, we read this, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. That was for Saul and his son Jonathan. I ended it there. Okay. So, again, fasting would be connected to mourning. Yes. Second Samuel 12, 14 to 23. This is the death of David and Bathsheba's child. You recall this horrendous little story. David sleeps with Uriah's wife. She gets pregnant. And then to cover up his sin, he kills Uriah. And the child of that union is taken by the Lord. And David uh, is overwhelmed by the child's illness. And we read this, verse 22. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. While I was still alive, I fasted and wept. So the fasting would be connected to grieving, grieving, the anticipation of the loss, right? 1 Kings 21, 9 to 12. This is that story about Naboth's vineyard. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. So his wife, the extraordinarily wicked Jezebel, concocted this scheme to accuse Naboth of a secret sin. And part of that scheme was the proclaiming of a sham fast. We read this. Now she had written in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men opposite him and have them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. In proclaiming the fast, what was she feigning? What fit? Contrition? Grief over the sin? Like I said, several things might fit. Okay? Very good. 1 Kings 21. This is the pronouncement of judgment against Ahab for this very thing. After Naboth's death, the Lord sent Elijah to Ahab to pronounce punishment for all his sins, and we read this. Yet it came about, when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. So what appears to be the the best connection with fasting? Mourning, contrition, grief of what's about to happen to him. You see how fluid some of these are. First Chronicles 10 Verse 12. Now, as you know, Chronicles uh, recounts many of the same events as Kings. So again, we read this regarding the death of Saul and his sons. All the valiant men got up and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh, and they burned their bones on the oak and Tabish and fasted for seven days. So it's the same as the one before, right? It's morning, right? Second Chronicles 20, 3 and 4. This is Judah under attack. Uh, King Jehoshaphat learns that a great army of the Ammonites and Moabites are assembled to wipe them out. And we read this. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a period of fasting throughout Judah. They're about to be attacked. They're about to be wiped out. He proclaims a fast. What would that be? An expression of 
grief, yeah, and impending devastation. Ezra 8, 21-23, protection from God is invoked. Uh, after the 70-year captivity, traveling back from Babylon to Jerusalem, Ezra the scribe wrote these words. Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river of Ahava to what? Humble ourselves before our God, to seek him, to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. This passage supplies the word for you. Ezra chapter 10, verse 6. This has to do with the Jews marrying foreign wives. This is an instance where the word for fasting does not appear, but the description of it certainly does. The Jews who returned from exile jumped right back into their sinful ways of marrying foreign women, foreign women leading them into idolatry. Uh, that was what happened back then, and when Christians today marry non-Christians, that happens today as well, right? This is why as a Christian, you do not marry a non-Christian. You do not date a non-Christian. It just leads to no good, Okay. We read this, while he was there, he ate no food and drank no water, because he continued to what? Mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Okay? Nehemiah 1.4, this is the distress of the remnant. Uh, Nehemiah, who was back in Susa, uh, the capital of Persia, heard about the distress of the Jews who were living in Jerusalem, and the fact that Jerusalem was just a ruin, okay? And he wrote this. Did I turn it? Okay. He wrote this. Now when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, okay? Nehemiah 9, 1 to 2. As we're reading the law. Now, it had been generations since the Jews had been back in Jerusalem, and many of them had never, ever heard the word of the Lord read to them before. Never. So when Ezra read it to them, they were overwhelmed by their disobedience. And we read this. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the wrongdoings of their fathers. Okay? So, contrition, yes. Esther, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. This is Haman's plot to kill the Jews. When the Jews discover that they were the victims of this plot and that they were about to lose their lives, uh, we read this. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and mourning rites. And many had sackcloth and ashes spread out as a bed. Okay? So the answer here, the connection is mourning. Esther 4, 16 to 17. Now, the reason for the fast at this particular passage is not mentioned, okay? But it is in the verse that we're about to 
see right after. So we'll skip this one, marking it uh, until we get to the next one. But we'll read it now. Uh, we read in chapter 4, uh, and this is when Esther plans to intercede for the king. It says, Go, gather all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for, the, for three days, night or day. I and my attendants also will fast in the same way. And then I will go into the king, which is not in accordance with the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now hang on before marking it. In Esther 9, we have the establishment of the, of the Feast of Purim, which many people believe was the whole reason why the book of Esther was written, was to explain why that they are uh, observing this Feast of Purim. Okay? And the conclusion comes at the end of the book where the explanation is made. Verse 31. To establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants, with instructions for their times of fasting and their mourning. Okay? So it appears as if all three mentions of fasting in the book of Esther are connected with mourning. Psalm 35, 13. This is a prayer of rescue from one's enemies. David writes that his enemies rise up against him, but, verse 13, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. Okay? Easy. Easy. Psalm 69, 9-11. This is a cry of distress. David appeals to God for help, writing, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my disgrace. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a proverb to them. So he wept in his soul with fasting. What would be the word we would use? Grief, grief fits. That's what I got. Psalm 109, 24. In this psalm, David is asking for some rather nasty stuff to happen to his enemies. And in the middle of all that, he writes this. For I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like the locust. My knees are weak from fasting. David says that he's fasting because my heart is wounded within me. Right? So that would be what? Grief, right? And here we see the very strong connection between humility and fasting. Weakness and fasting, okay? I mean, he says it. My knees are weak from fasting, okay? Isaiah 58 Three to six. This is um, Isaiah's words against empty ritualism. God, through the prophet Isaiah, accuses the Jews of only outwardly honoring him. Outwardly, through fasting, they pretend to debase themselves before God, but on the inside, they care nothing for God. The people supposedly ask this question. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? You know very well that in, Greek, in the Hebrew parallelism, 
That, that's equating the two, right? Fasting and humble. Jeremiah 14, 1 to 12. I only have a portion, a very small portion of these 12 verses written for you here. God in this passage has had enough of Judah's sins and he is going to hold them to account. Jeremiah writes in verse 11, So the Lord said to me, Do not pray for a good outcome on behalf of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. Now the key to it, which I didn't write here, is found all the way back up in verse 2, where this, where this account begins with the words, Judah mourns. Okay? So their fasting was equated with mourning. Jeremiah 36, 6 to 9. Nebuchadnezzar is on his way from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the year 605 BC, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to carry them all off as captives. The Jews had chosen a day to fast, and Jeremiah chooses that same day to deliver his message, most likely because the crowds would be bigger. Okay? And we read this. So you go and read from the scroll on a day of fasting, and you shall also read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. Perhaps their pleading will come before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the wrath that God has pronounced against this people. The people are sorry for their sins, but it's too late. Right. Contrition. Daniel 6, 17 to 19. This is Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, who was the king's favorite, is the victim of a plot by his enemies that led to his being thrown into the den of lions. Uh, and we read this. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought to him, and his sleep fled from him. This is the only place where the Hebrew adverb tavath is used which means hungrily. So literally, the king spent the night hungrily, okay, dreading what was about to be confirmed uh, in the morning. So what would be the connection between his fasting? Grief, right? The anticipation of that horrible news, right? <clears throat> I feel compelled to stop here for just a second. Um, when I grew up, I was Catholic. I remember I had this big 20-pound red Bible, uh, the Catholic Bible, and it always has pictures in it. And I remember being fascinated by this picture of Daniel in the lion's den, where uh, Daniel is in one corner of the cell, and he's praying, and the lions, there were like six or seven of them, they are heaped up in the opposite corner, clawing on themselves, trying to get away from Daniel. It looks like they're trying to claw their way through the wall. And in between the lions and Daniel is an angel in these bright, sh bright shining armor. He's just standing there staring at the lions. Uh, it's a picture that burned itself into my brain. It's a wonderful picture that I have, which is one of the reasons why, and I digress, but I can do that, um, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why when an angel appeared to someone they liked, what's the first thing they said? Don't be afraid. Because that's exactly what would happen. When they appeared to people they didn't like, like the Roman soldiers, they just stood there, and down they went, right? Fainted away. 
I mean, angels are not to be messed with. Uh, I don't know why I told you that. Uh, <laughs> all right. Daniel 9, 1 to 6. Daniel's prayer. Daniel reading Jeremiah, he learns that the captivity is going to last for 70 years. Okay? And this is what he, what he wrote. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and pleading with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. We have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. So the word would we, we choose would be contrition, right? Joel 1, 5 to 14. This is that crazy story about the devastation of the locusts. I mean, the land is in the midst of judgment by locusts, and everything is gone. There is simply nothing left. The locusts have eaten all of it. And among the 14 verses of this chapter, one reads this, and I've just taken snippets of it. Wail, all you wine drinkers. Wail like a virgin clothed with sackcloth. The priests mourn. The land mourns. Well, you vine dresses, put on sackcloth and mourn, you priests. Consecrate a fast and cry out to the Lord. So the word is mourning. Yeah. Joel 2, 12 to 15. This is the very next chapter. And this is the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay. The invading Assyrian army, which is likened to the locust plague that they just discussed in the first chapter, is on its way. And when they descend on Israel, they are going to carry away the ten northern tribes of Israel, leading them to never be heard of again. Okay? You ever heard of the ten lost tribes? You ever heard of that? The ten lost tribes of Israel? This is, what ha this is where it happened. Okay? Assyria came down, conquered Israel, the ten northern tribes, and their practice was to quell rebellion by destroying nationalism. So they carried them off into other lands and settled them elsewhere. And these Jews assimilated into the surrounding culture and disappeared. We have no idea what happened to them from there. Okay? Uh, so... The Lord through Joel says to them, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Okay? Jonah. 3, 5 to 9. Now, this is this wonderful story of Nineveh repenting. After being vomited out by the fish onto the shore, Jonah is walking through the city, reluctantly crying out, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And we read this. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the dust. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything. They are not to eat or drink water. 
but every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and people are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. So this fast that was called is connected with contrition. Zechariah 7, 2-5. This is a delegation that comes from Bethel to Jerusalem, and they ask, they ask the leaders of Jerusalem this question. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month, as I have done so for many years? Mourn and fast. Here it's connected again to mourning. Zechariah 8, 19. This refers to the coming peace and prosperity of Zion. This entire chapter is remarkable in the manner in which it foretells of the reversal of fortune of Israel. I mean, for centuries, these guys have taken beatings, but that will not always be the case. In verse 19, we read this. The Lord of armies says this, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, jubilation, and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. The Lord here announces that there will come a time when fasting will come to an end and be replaced by feasting. In other words, fasting and mourning will be replaced by feasting and joy. So, the connection here is mourning or contrition. Okay. Now, we finally made it to the New Testament. Okay. I'm sorry that this is so rote and boring. I apologize for that. But this is what Bible study is very boring. Okay. Matthew 4, uh, verse 1 to 3. This is the temptation of Jesus. And here we see the very, very strong connection between fasting and humility. Fasting makes a person weak and vulnerable and dependent upon God. It is the opposite, as I said, of being well-fed, strong, and independent of God. The stated purpose of this experience for Jesus is that he be tempted by the devil. Now note, only after fasting 40 days, and only after it states that Jesus became hungry, yeah, right, uh, did the devil come and tempt Jesus. And what was the first thing he tempted him to do? Yeah, turn these stones into bread. I mean, you're starving to death. Turn these stones into bread. We read this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. It appears that the purpose of the fast was to so deliberately weaken Jesus that he would feel the full brunt of the temptation. Make sense? Okay. He would be at his worst when overcoming this temptation. It appears that that's the case. Okay? So, we would say it's humility, right, for this. Because humility and being weakened go together, and that was the purpose of the fast. Okay? Matthew 6, 16 to 18. This has to do with hypocrisy. Jesus says, now whenever you fast, did I change the thing? Yeah. 
Now whenever you fast, do not make a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do, for they distort their faces, so that they will be noticed by people when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by people, but by your Father, who is in secret. If, as we've clearly seen, fasting is a means of humbling yourself, how hypocritical would it be to do so while walking around with your face all filthy and dust in your hair, advertising the fact that you're fasting, advertising the fact that you're going through this ritual, right? It's like boasting that you're humble, right? Which is hypocritical, right? So the connection between fasting here is humility, right? Matthew 9, 14 to 15. Uh, this is the presence of the groom. It appears three times in different, we'll just talk about this one. Verse 14, Jesus, uh, we read from Matthew. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the groom cannot, what? Mourn, as long as the groom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Fasting and mourning, they have an equal sign between them, Right? The connection between fasting and mourning cannot be, more made, cannot be made more clear than it is here. Mark 2, 18 to 20 is the parallel verse in Mark. We're not reading it. Just put down mourning. Uh, Luke, Jesus is presented at the temple in this passage. Uh, this is the passage where the old widow Anna we're told, never left the temple, waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And we read this. She did not leave the temple grounds, serving night and day with fasts and prayers. Now, the context does not tell us or give us a hint as to which of these four reasons it is. So this is the perfect opportunity for us to invent an entirely new reason for fasting, right? Right? <laughs> Yeah, it's, let's take advantage of it. Uh, we, no, we don't do that. We have already established a paradigm strong enough that we know that we should choose between one of those four that fits here. And what fits very well here? Humility. Yeah, she's humbling herself. Luke 5, 33 to, 30, 33 to 35. Again, this is the presence of the groom. This is the third of the three accounts of the same exact thing. Uh, mourning is what we have. Luke 18, 11 to 12. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Okay? In this parable, Jesus contrasts the humility of the tax collector with the pride of the Pharisee. The Pharisee says to himself, verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. Now, again, the context doesn't tell us why he fasted. Uh, so that would be a good question to ask. Why did the Pharisees fast twice a week? I doubt very much that it had to do with profound, a, a profound sense of contrition 
because the Pharisees didn't believe themselves guilty of any sin, right? I doubt very much that they were humbling themselves because pride was their greatest sin, right? They walked around with, when they were fasting with dirt all over themselves, advertising the fact. I doubt that it was grief because grief is occasional and can't be scheduled twice a week, right? <laughs> An interesting possibility is that they were publicly mourning, okay? Consider this, Ezra the scribe, who is understood to have played an enormous role in the formation and customs and practices in the Jewish synagogue, uh, has a prayer found in Nehemiah chapter 9 that could be very instructive toward this end. Uh, Let me read it to you. I think I've got it there. Okay. Ezra prayed this. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law. Behold, we are slaves today. And as for the land which you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its, and its bounty, behold, we are slaves on it. And its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. For centuries, the occupation of Israel by foreign powers was a plague upon the Jews, which they felt very keenly. And certainly in Jesus' day, the Roman oppression was uh, a real nightmare for them. So it's possible that their fasting was a public display of mourning that fact, the fact that they were slaves in their own country. Okay, Perhaps, perhaps. So I, for myself, put mourning there. Are we zooming along? I'm going faster than I thought. Yeah, okay. Acts 13, 2 to 3. This is Paul and Barnabas sent to the Gentiles. We read this about the members of the church at Antioch. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted, prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Again, there's no hint in the context as to why they fasted, but our paradigm is again so strong that we can very easily choose from one that fits nicely in this. So why were the people in Antioch fasting about this? They were what? Humbling themselves before God. Acts 14. Verse 23, this has to do with the appointing of elders in new churches across Asia Minor. Uh, As they made their way across, Paul and Barnabas appointed leaders, and we read this. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what fits? Humility. Yes, very good. Acts 27, 9. This was when Paul was sent to Rome. This was his last journey. And on his voyage, they ran into a violent storm, and Paul and all his shipmates were shipwrecked. And Luke makes this note, and I mention it because it has the word fast in it, okay? Uh, Nestia. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, OK? 
okay? For the sake of completeness, I just stuck this in here. The fast referenced here almost certainly refers uh, to the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur. It takes place on the 10th day of the month of Tishra. That's on the Jewish calendar. That would be the equivalent of our September and October. And the sailing season ended in October because the weather would turn foul and you didn't want to be out there in those little boats, right? Which is why Luke mentions the fact that the fast was over. It's now October. We could come into some storms. The weather's going to be bad, and that's exactly what happened, right? They got capsized by the storms. So the fast referenced here is the Day of Atonement, which we've already seen uh, references our humility before God. And lastly, I went through this much faster than I thought. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, teaching on marriage. Among the things that Paul writes to the Corinthians about marriage is this. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I think that you can tell that what I just read was from the King James Version. As we saw last week, even the new King James Version refuses to update their text because the words and fasting here is also a gloss, okay? Just like it was back in Mark, which we discussed last week. It didn't appear. Perhaps that same monk stuck it in here all on his own, and thereafter... Uh, it was recorded as such. Paul instructs husbands and wives that they could agree not to sleep together for a short while so that they could concentrate on prayer. Now, if they wanted to, let me ask you this, if they wanted to, could they also pray and fast? Of course they could. Nothing keeps them from doing that. It's perfectly fine. But it doesn't say that here. Okay? It just says prayer. There's nothing wrong with fasting and praying during, that, during such a time, but it doesn't say that there. And uh, there you are. I hope that this demonstrated that fasting is not a means of acquiring spiritual power and authority. I mean, in all these passages that we read, did we even get a sniff of that, a hint of it? Not at all. Fasting is not the means by which you demonstrate to God that you are really sincere. Again, it's nowhere to be found. Fasting is not the means by which we overcome divine reluctance, forcing him somehow to grant us our, our request. And fasting is not the means by which we are reminded to pray. Okay? It's not. Fasting is instead a natural expression of mourning, grief, contrition, and humility. Now, <clears throat> when... I don't know about you, but... I've always experienced a sense of relief when something that had been fuzzy or foggy in the Bible suddenly snapped into focus for me. I always enjoyed that, like uh, I could breathe out. Ah, oh, all right, I got this now. Um, if fasting for you was one of those fuzzy, foggy things, then I hope that you are experiencing the same relief that I sometimes feel. And that's it.
Well, it was definitely fuzzy and foggy for me, as I shared last week. I have several books on fasting, and there's um, not much material in the Bible that deals with this subject didactically. We just have lots of these examples, and so all these books tended to take different strains. And I was kidding around with um, Ted before the service that one of the fasts strongly advocated that you do not do a fast unless God calls you to that fast. You have, you have to know that it's God's will for you to fast. And the purpose of fasting is to discover God's will. So you have to fast to figure out whether you're going to fast. You know, it's really, that, that's not what the book said, but that's the logical conclusion of it. And this is typically, you know, the, the result of even those right books, or it's just things are not really clear even in their own minds. But I found this to be very clear, very helpful. Have many found it helpful? It's good. All right. So I'm tempted to say today we'll start a 40-day fast so that we can better understand this subject. I have a great-grandmother who fasted 40 days at a time for many, many times throughout her whole life, and I cannot imagine anything like that. Can you? <laughs> Jesus did it, and she did it to follow his example. All right, so let's stand. I'm going to um, dismiss you with these words. This is like a blessing that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Indeed, may the Lord be with all of you. You are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.